the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Is our government broken? And then, does God hate wealth? You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Friday, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today on a Friday morning. We made it to the end of the weekend, uh, end of the week, to the weekend. And for many of you... With this weekend comes a three-day weekend. President's Day going to be on Monday. And so hopefully you've got three days off ahead of you. Later on in the show, I'm going to try to make the case as to why part of your weekend should involve going to church. But we also hope that you just are able to relax and have a good time. We've had ourselves a great week here at The Common Good. And I encourage you, if you missed any of our shows, to go get the podcast, wherever it is, get your podcast. Just subscribe, rate, review. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. All right. Uh, We've got an election coming up. A lot of politics on people's minds. Uh, Who's primarily going to win the White House between our two old, old, old candidates, uh, President Biden and former President Trump? That at least looks like what it's going to be. People grappling with that being our choice and, uh, yeah, less than excited about that, I would I would say for myself, but I know for many of you out there, but also the walls, the halls of Congress, what's going to happen this year in the House and in the Senate. And uh, I think for a lot of us, when we look at Congress in particular, when we see stories from the House or from the Senate, Uh, I think it's even more discouraging than when we look at stories even from the White House because nothing gets done and it's just bickering. And what it actually feels like is people are getting elected in Congress to make money and to stand in the way of anything happening. And that's a problem. And maybe it's always been that way and we just didn't know it as acutely, but it feels like Congress is broken. Do you ever feel that way? Do you feel like the House and the Senate are broken? Well, if you think that's the case, then let me share with you uh, some discouragement that's going to add to what you think. Because increasingly, some of the good people inside Congress are getting out. Because they feel like it's broken. Or even not the good people, whoever what they might be. So Republican Representative Mark Green of Tennessee announced on Wednesday that he won't seek reelection at the end of his third term. The 59-year-old lawmaker currently serves as the chair of the House Homeland Security Committee. He said this it, when talking about why he's leaving. This place is so broken, Green told Axios. It feels like a lot of something for nothing. 
He joins fellow retiring Republican House Committee chairs Patrick McHenry of the Financial Services Committee, Kathy McMorris-Rogers of the Energy and Commerce Committee, and Kay Granger of the Appropriations Committee in leaving the lower chamber at the end of the term. Also on Wednesday, Representative James Clyburn of South Carolina announced that he will step down as House Assistant Democratic Leader. He will still seek reelection in the fall. So what we're hearing uh, from people inside the halls of Congress is I don't want to do this anymore because it's broken. That's discouraging, but we all see it. We can see it when we watch nothing get passed, when we watch what appears to be the crazy people on both sides of the aisle getting most of the oxygen and most of the uh, the attention, when we see um, even the the most basic of things of keeping the government running, being a fight over and over again. And it feels like, again, maybe in this day of information and uh, 24-hour news and social media, we're just seeing the way it's always been. But my perception has always been that people in Congress, while vehemently disagreeing with each other, found ways to work with one another found ways to be civil, found ways to disagree and then go to dinner or whatever else it might be. There was a level of respectability. There was a level of civility. There was a level of compromise in which there was stuff still getting done. And that seems gone. And because of that, it seems broken. Like I've got Fears. Is fear the right word? I've got fears for uh, the future of our government. Like you see the trajectory of where it goes. And then you add on top of it the story we did a week or two ago about uh, this, the shadiness of Congress, right? I think we, the jumping off story we used on that one was Nancy Pelosi and the amount of money she's made from trades that make no sense in her stocks and stuff like that. It makes no sense. And then There was in that article, it talked about people on the left and the right and how much money these people have made since entering Congress. And then we know how much money they're supposed to make. We know what their salaries are. That's public knowledge. And so when they go into Congress and they're making $150,000, $200,000, whatever else it might be, but yet they regularly make in the millions, it does make you go, well, something's going on in there. Something's not right. And I don't know what the answer is. Some people will tell you it's term limits. Other people will say, no, it's this or that. But here's what I do know. Our government feels broken. And so when I read this earlier today, I thought to myself, okay, then what? Like, what's the word? Because we're, we're, we're not a political show. We'll touch on politics. But ultimately, what we want to say is, How are we supposed to think about this as Christ followers? How are we supposed to think about this Christianly, as we often have said? And I wonder uh, that often as what feels like the fabric of our of our government kind of is fraying. And it's going to feel like that with this election, I'm sure. I already heard somebody on the TV yesterday uh 
guessing that that this presidential election, I hope this isn't true. She said, oh, undoubtedly, it'll take weeks before we actually know who won. And you're like, oh, my gosh, I don't know if we can handle that. So what do we say about this as a Christian? I think it points us back to thank you, Lord, that Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is on the throne. We have a king. We have a Lord. We have a savior. He's on the throne. He's not on the ballot this November. And we also know that sin and power corrupt. So it shouldn't surprise us that the wall, that the halls of power within our nation feel corrupt and broken. It should disturb us. We should advocate for change and for accountability, but it shouldn't surprise us. And so it points us again to Jesus who sits on the throne. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's what we declare this Easter season. And so we go, yes, we want to see reforms, but you know what? Our hope is not in the United States of America. Our hope is not in our congressman, our congresswoman. It is not in our president who gets elected this November. Those are important, but it's not ultimate. It is not where our hope lies. And so we take that perspective. We focus our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and we run the race towards him. So many of us get so tied up in the politics of our day. We just immerse ourselves and we we just consume uh, social media about politics and uh cable news and talk radio and all these other things. And instead we need to do things that are going to point ourselves, point um, point us to Jesus, the King of Kings who sits on the throne in whom that we can trust. He is the rock of our salvation in whom we can trust as other things feel like they're kind of falling apart, that they're really kind of shaky. Things are on shaky ground. It can point us once again to Jesus. All right, let's talk money. You might be like, oh, why would we talk about money? Well, simply put, Jesus talks a ton about money. Some st- some people say that Jesus, uh, of his recorded words, there's 25% of his recorded words in the four gospels have to do with money. Money's a big deal. In fact, the book of, uh, where is it? I'm not even going to guess, but we read that the the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And yet we live in a culture that loves money. It loves money. We love money. So more, almost more than any other culture in the world, and maybe more than any other culture in the world, we are based on money, the accumulation of money and things and possessions. And we as Christians should regularly be asking ourselves, how does that uh, jive, if you will, with our faith? Because if our faith is ultimate and primary, then might money be serving as a hurdle? Do we love money? These are all things that we need to wrestle with. And that's what got my attention and my mind going when J.D. Greer at his website asks this question, how to know if God hates your wealth. He tells an interesting story at the beginning. He says, a couple of years ago, my wife and I visited some missionaries in Germany. One family we saw lived in a small rural village in the countryside. When we arrived at the village, it was dark and difficult But the next to see our surroundings. But the next morning, 
As I looked out the window, I thought I'd been transported to a poem. It was the most idyllic German hillside you could imagine. Sheep were grazing on the green rolling hills. A windmill spun in the distance. Even the sky seemed a little bluer. But our host ruined the beauty of the scene during breakfast. They told us that just beyond the picturesque scene was a slaughterhouse. All those tranquil sheep living their best lives were simply being prepared for slaughter. Stunningly, the book of James says something very similar. This is what the lives of the rich are like in James 5.5. 5. Their boastful posture towards wealth breeds a godlike confidence of expecting tomorrow and fulfilling their own destiny. Also, the book of James chapter 4. Book of James has a lot to say about money and possessions and speech and all these things. Our lives, when viewed from God's vantage point, are as fleeting and fragile as the mist. Those with wealth, like the sheep on that German hillside, have a hard time remembering this. Money, Greer writes, in and of itself is not sinful. Being wealthy isn't synonymous with being evil, but James puts his finger on something deeply disturbing. When untethered from devotion to God, our wealth can store up judgment for us. So how do we know? How do we know if our wealth is wicked? That's the question. If wealth in and of itself isn't evil, but the love of money, the the pursuit of wealth is the root of all kinds of evil. Greer wants to ask, how do we know? How do we know if we're doing this right? Even if you have a lot of money. See, here's the here's the fallacy. <clears throat> a lot of you and myself included, when we don't have a lot of money, that's when we most love money. I must get more. I must get more. If I just had more, I'll be happy, right? Like, I don't even think this is a super rich versus uh, super poor dichotomy. At the same time, Jesus does say that it's more difficult for a camel to go through the, or it's more difficult, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Like, that should if you're rich, and I know we're all rich to some point, but I mean, by our cultural standards, if you're rich, that should cause you a lot of pause. And dare I say, a lot of fear. So how do we know, Greer asks, if our wealth is wicked? He says, number one, uh, hoarding. Saving up money can be wise, as Proverbs says, but when it becomes our mission to pile up wealth on earth, especially at the expense of generosity or in a way that ignores the needs of those around us, that's evil. Does that mean there's a magic number above which any wealth automatically becomes evil? Greer writes, I don't think so. But our society gets this completely backwards, so we need to be incredibly cautious. Our culture says give sufficiently and live extravagantly. A heart touched by the gospel says live sufficiently and give extravagantly. So what do we believe about that? What does your life look like? What does your money look like? What's the goal for you is hoarding and getting as much for yourself as possible. Is that what's going on in your life? Number two, self-indulgence. Uh, James 5, 5 says you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. This is more than enjoying a few nice things. Greer writes like driving a reliable car, blessing someone with a college education or taking a nice vacation. The self-indulgent person lives in such a way that totally disconnects them from the people around them and their needs. They seek to flaunt their wealth and make a statement. 
In our day, most of us would define self-indulgent as someone who enjoys nicer things than me. But scripture encourages us to do more honest soul searching along this line. Look around at the people living in your neighborhood. Greer writes in your kid's school, in your city, how does your standard of living look to them? Are you serving others or indulging yourself? Right. This is a very fine line because there's always people of nicer stuff than us. There's always people who have less than us. But this is about a posture. Is my money solely about me? Is it about me? Self-indulgence. And number three, Greer writes, injustice. This appears for James to be the biggest problem of the three. It's not merely that the rich were self-indulgent and gluttons, but that their greed meant the poverty of others. Some people's wealth, then as now, came by way of exploiting and defrauding others. James puts it this way. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. In other words, James is calling out those who manipulate the system to keep people from their due. The luxury of the rich in this scenario was built on the backs of the poor. Greer continues, I know all Christians don't agree about the best ways to care for the poor or how to pursue justice in government matters. But regardless of your political stance, the bottom line for the Christian is that the poor are our responsibility because they are God's responsibility and we seek their welfare. For those of us who have money, James urges us to consider why God gave it to us in the first place. James 4 tells us that it's God and God alone who makes us rich. He asks us to steward all that he's given to us, no matter how much or how little, entrusting us with a responsibility to fulfill his purposes through it. Money can be the weight around our neck, or it can be an opportunity to live out the gospel to serve others. So I I think these are good. I don't think these are exhaustive, but three things with my wealth. Am I hoarding? Am I self-indulgent? Is there injustice? And do I use my money uh, to further God's kingdom? Do I use my money to further the kingdom or further my kingdom? That's really kind of the way to look at it. And I know money's difficult. And we can make excuses. We could do all sorts of things. But the, the truth of the matter is Jesus had so much to say about money that we should really take a hard look at our own lives. Like th- that should cause us to go, okay, I really need to take a hard look at my own life. So thought I would bring that to you. Thought that was very helpful. Food for thought. Uh, you know, sometimes... We try to tell fun stories and we talked about Pop-Tarts earlier in this show, but sometimes you just got to meet the difficult things of life head on. I was with a group of people earlier this week in which I was the only one in this group who didn't have somebody really close to me seriously struggling with cancer. Some of them, it was like hospice cancer. Other ones, it was like, I, we don't know what's going to happen. Other ones, like, yeah, we continue to battle. And it was, it felt really <clears throat> heavy and overwhelming to some level. And I, I mean, 
We talked and heard their stories. And it left me thinking like, man, what's this, what's the answer that we have for people in these situations? Now, thankfully, these people that I was talking to, all Christ followers, their faith was, because again, the, the the people in their life who are struggling with cancer was in, you know, they, they were different levels. They were different, like some really close, some close. But it did make me think like, what what role does our faith play when you come up against these types of like life altering, tragic, difficult, dark things like cancer, late stage cancer? What does the church have to say to that? Does that make sense? Like this is kind of where the rubber meets the road of faith. We are going to talk, we're going to end our show later today talking about the new heavens and the new earth of Revelation 21. But what is the word that we have in those situations? Well, first I would suggest, like we see in the book of Job, the best thing we can do is just listen and sit and be present. We don't need to have the answers. We don't need to say to the people who are struggling, <clears throat> and this might be where you're at right now, struggling. And you're going, yes, I don't primarily need answers. Too often we jump to answers. And maybe that's just not what is needed all the time. Answers. But a lot of for us in our own lives, we need answers. We need to figure out what do I believe? Because in those dark moments of cancer or death or where, whatever else it might be, it's natural to shake our fists at God and say, where are you? Why do these things exist? How am I supposed to deal with this? God, where are you? The answer to those are not easy. They're not all wrapped up in a bow. We uh, see stories after stories in the Bible of people calling out that exact phrase. Where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Why do you seem silent? It's okay to ask that question, especially in the midst of really, really difficult times. But then I think we can be reminded That while we still live in a broken world, right, we, we still are dealing with the effects of the fall. Our, our, our world is still, it's still dominated by death and the effects of sin and the fall. Like death is still our reality. Cancer is still a reality. Brokenness is still the reality. But God says in that reality, I am present. I am near to the brokenhearted. And we can point people in that direction. And we can point ourselves in that direction when we are struggling. I'm near to the brokenhearted. Are you brokenhearted today? Know that God is near. He is present. Jesus says, I will be with you always. I will never leave you or forsake you. When you say, where are you, God? The answer is he's right there alongside you. 
And with that comes promises of peace that passes understanding and other things. Like we're living in this already, not yet. Because the second thing we point people to is the victory of Jesus Christ. The power of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is victorious. And then we, we, we struggle and we live in this already, not yet. Where Jesus is already victorious, but it is not yet fully realized. And so we wrestle with that and we struggle with that. But we know that in the already not yet, God is indeed present. And we can celebrate that. You are offered peace. He is near to you. And then we hold on to that victory that there is coming a day where there will be no more cancer. There's coming a day where there will be no more death. There is in fact coming a day where there will be no more hardship. And there's coming a day where Jesus will sit on his throne to rule and to reign for all of eternity. And we will be in his presence and we will not need to struggle with these things like death and brokenness. Estrangement and, and all the things that hurt us in this world. And it's not escapism to point ourselves or to point our friends to the future. But it is in fact reality. And it's comforting and it allows us to persevere, right? How do we persevere? We persevere because we know that God is present and we persevere because we know that God is active and that in Jesus Christ, God has been, is, and always will be victorious. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The power of sin is, is death. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we talked about with those people around the table who were struggling. But I wonder how you process whatever you're going through life right now. As we deal with the brokenness and the hardship of this world, how do you endure? How do you push forward? What does that look like? God says, I'm near to the brokenhearted. I will be with you always. And there's coming a day where none of this is our reality. Hopefully that's good news for you today because it's the only good news that we have in the midst of the real difficulties of this world. We're closing it out for the week. For many of you get a three-day weekend, President's Weekend coming up. Uh, but we are glad that you are joining us today. Uh, hey, if you've missed any of our shows this week, we'd encourage you to go get the podcast. Wherever it is, you get your podcast. Just subscribe, rate, review. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. And I want to end our show this week with some encouragement. I want to encourage us about the eternal perspective Right, We've talked a lot, it feels like, in the last couple of days about the difficult things of this world and the perspective. And I want to leave us, as we go into the weekend, with the eternal perspective. Um, I'm looking at an article over at the Christian Post about Revelation 21 and the new heaven and the new earth. But uh, it, underlying this is just this question. Does it matter 
that, that I've got my eyes focused on what is to come. That eternity somehow gets into my temporal mind. They begin with a quote from a German-American aerospace engineer, somebody a lot smarter than many of us. He became a key figure in the early years of NASA. He said this. Uh, he once said he had essentially scientific reasons for believing in life after death. He explained, science has found that nothing can disappear without a trace. Nature does not know extinction. All it knows is transformation. If God applies this fundamental principle to the most minute and insignificant parts of the universe, doesn't it make sense to assume that he applies it to the masterpiece of his creation, the human soul? I think it does. The author goes on to say, though, however, we fall short of understanding if we think God's programming of redemption in Christ is only about the soul. It's broader still. While the forgiveness of sins, uh, holy life and going to heaven lie at the core of the gospel's message, the good news of Jesus Christ encompasses every aspect of existence. It isn't only focused on individual spiritual renewal. Rather, it encompasses the renewal of families, communities, education, business, society, government, and more ultimately, it entails the transformation of the entire universe, heaven and earth, celestial and terrestrial. Consider then he writes what Paul, uh, what John writes in Revelation 21 verses one through four. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. All these things are gone forever. This is that eternal perspective that we talked about. All through this week, we talked about cancer a few segments ago and how do we move through these difficult things of life. It's, it's Revelation 21. There's coming a day when there will be no more sorrow or pain, cancer or death or any of this. And it's this perspective that just says there is coming a day. There is coming a day. J. Wilbur Chapman, Presbyterian evangelist, he often preached alongside D.L. Moody. He wrote a poem about eternity. He said, how long sometimes a day appears and weeks, how long they are. Months move as if the years would never pass away. But days and weeks are passing by and soon must all be gone. For day by day, the moments fly. Eternity comes on. Days, months, and years must have an end. Eternity has none. It will always be as long to spend as when it first begun. This is kind of what the Apostle John is talking about. What's to come? And I can't describe everything that eternity will be. Where are we going to be? How's it going to look? Are we going to be working? Are we going to be worshiping? What does that worship look like? How are we? Do we have families? Like all of these questions, which are fun to think about and are important questions, but don't allow that to take you away from the main point that we have eternity ahead of us. That we have eternity ahead of us. That there is all new, all things will be made new. And it is coming. There is coming 
a day. We can get so worked up about the book of Revelation and what's the Antichrist and 666 and when amillennial and premillennial and postmillennial and all of these things. Again, important, I suppose. But don't allow it to take you from what we know. Because all of those we're guessing, we're reading, we're trying to figure out. But don't allow those things to take us from what we know. And that is that there is coming a day. That there is coming a day. When there's a new heaven and a new earth and the new Jerusalem comes down from above and God makes his dwelling from humanity with humanity for eternity, he will wipe away every tear. There will be no more pain. And so we could say glory to God, glory to God that there are no more tears, not even a remnant of them in God's new world. But then now in our already not yet in this world, we can have hope. See, this kind of perspective towards the new Jerusalem, this kind of perspective towards eternity, it gives us hope. It allows us to endure and persevere. Indeed, eternity is a long, long, long stretch. I can remember as a kid, it freaked me out. But it's all good. It's all good. In Christ, in Christ, we can say this, that believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Friends, the eternal perspective doesn't cause us to disengage from this world. It causes us to have the right perspective of this world, that we can uh, be on mission. We want other people to know this good news, that this is not all that there is. Uh, but we also it also gives us hope. It gives us hope that there's coming a day when all will be made new. And that's not some pie-in-the-sky hope, but it is instead our reality. So whatever you're going through today, Know the hope of Revelation chapter 21, that there is indeed coming a day when there will be no more tears, there will be no more pain, but there will be Jesus and all things will be made new. I hope that gives you hope and perspective today as you go into your weekend. And I hope that you get some relaxation this weekend and go to church Sunday morning, get up, get prepared on Saturday night, and then go to church Well, we're glad that you joined us today. Join me again on Monday from four until six. Until then, we hope that you have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.